Heart of Mission, the podcast that was to be a conference. Summer conference may be cancelled, but let's continue investing in how God is at work globally. My name is Mark Peterson, and in this five-episode series, we'll explore the question, should we still be sending missionaries? What is the heart of mission that makes this so important? We'll hear from each of the conference speakers as well as CMS gospel workers serving cross-culturally around the world. We have panel discussions, interviews, stories from the field, and much, much more. Listen out for a new episode each Monday, all focusing on God's global mission for a world that knows Jesus. During the days of this pandemic, we've all had to get used to things changing. We've had to learn to hold our plans lightly and perhaps limit ourselves to thinking only a few days or maybe a few weeks in advance because we know that plans and events are just so uncertain and it's painful, isn't it? It goes on and on. It really was very sad to make the decision to cancel Summer Conference this year. There were a number of us tossing up the pros and cons and that meeting took about three hours. Events like this, they just happen every year, don't they? Long before I started working at CMS, my year would kick off at summer conference. The calendar would start with the big picture. Our family, we'd we'd love getting together and being reminded that God has the whole world in his hands, that his gospel of grace is for all nations and people groups. And to be honest, part of the annual process for me of going to conference was being reminded of the massive cultural diversity of the human race. Sure, there are many things that we all have in common, but there are lots of barriers, more than just language barriers. Starting the year with Global Mission lifts my horizons beyond my own backyard, and that's been a precious thing. So this Heart of Mission podcast, in a way, means we can still have that Global Mission kickstart to the year. But I've also felt for a while that there are questions that keep being asked about mission, and the pandemic may have brought these questions more to the surface. Basically, the questions revolve around, should we still be sending missionaries? Surely the pandemic is just adding to this list of complications that we're aware of and risks and costs involved in sending workers overseas. Should mission itself be changing? Do we need to pivot this? There are a bunch of potential objections that have been raised. Aren't the nations coming to us? We can minister to the nations in our own universities and in the suburbs. And surely internationals who come to faith here can then go back to their home countries and witness there. Can't we go to the nations using technology? If we can do schooling and other training and communications online locally, perhaps we can do it globally without the need for visas. And what about Australia? We've realised that we're now a post-Christian culture right here. People in our streets seem to be just as unreached as anywhere else in the world, right? Shouldn't the church focus on its own neighbourhoods? And isn't mission itself a bit on the nose anyway? There are cases where missionaries have done more harm than good. And so if we're going to send missionaries, how should we be doing that? What kind of mission are we actually sending people to do? The Heart of Mission podcast is seeking to answer those questions. What is at the heart of our mission? And what does that mean for sending missionaries overseas? In this first episode, we'll hear from some brand new CMS gospel workers planning to head overseas very shortly. 
We'll hear from some workers already overseas about what life is like for the church in their part of the world. But first up, we're going to dive into the Bible. If you're aware of Jesus' Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel and in other places, you know that Jesus sends his disciples to the nations to make more disciples. Who are the nations anyway? And just how central is this to the Bible's message? Is mission something for all Christians? Let's be honest, global evangelization sounds way beyond any of us. Our Bible teacher is Dr. Chris Fresh. Let's meet him. It is great to be able to welcome Chris Fresh to the Heart of Mission podcast. Chris, you work at the Bible College of South Australia. You're a lecturer in biblical languages and Old Testament, serving the church through that role. Tell us, what's the most exciting part of being involved in theological education? Yeah, well, Mark, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to be here with you. And um, the best, most exciting thing about uh, working in theological education has got to be the students, uh, getting to see these uh, these young men and women who are passionate about the gospel, who want to build up the church, who want to go out on mission, um, and they want to be trained for that. Uh, and knowing that that there that there is a harvest uh, out there, and that uh, God is raising up workers for that harvest, and so they come to the Bible College of South Australia uh, to be trained uh, for whatever God has called them to, whether that's pastoral ministry or mission work or uh, leading Bible studies in their churches, um, getting to be a part of their development as leaders in God's church is uh, is just a real privilege and just exciting to see how God is continuing to build His church uh, here in South Australia and across Australia. Now, it sounds like you're an American. Are you from one of the hot parts of America or one of the cold parts of America? (laughs) Uh, So kind of both. Uh, So I have spent most of my time in Texas, and uh, that's uh, uh, where I kind of did primary school and did uni, uh, but I also spent my high school years in Alaska, so two very different parts You've been in Australia since 2016, um, having spent some time in the UK as well. Uh, You're married to Laura, you've got two young girls. Tell us, what's it like being an American in Australia? Yeah, so it's uh, it's been good so far. So since 2016, uh, we're still here, and uh, we felt very uh, welcomed by um, by our friends here, by our church. Um, it's uh, it's been actually a, yeah, a pretty easy experience. And and now actually, we're we're not just Americans in Australia. We are American Australians in Australia, as we got our citizenship just this year, uh, which we're very excited about. But um, no, it, it's actually we my wife and I like to think about how uh, moving to the UK was uh, from Texas was a bit of a culture shock, uh, but coming to Adelaide uh, felt a little bit more um, natural to us. Kind of, you know, not 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 quite Texas, uh, but uh, it felt more like Texas to us uh, than than say the UK did. So. I'm so looking forward to hearing what Chris has to say. He's going to do a grand survey of the whole book of Isaiah. So to prepare us for that, we're going to just hear some of the opening verses and closing verses from that Old Testament book. We're going to meet Ainsley Purdy with her husband Malcolm a little later in the episode, but for now, she's going to bring these verses to us. From Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 2. 
In future days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains and will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob, so he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the centre for moral instruction. The Lord's message will issue from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and they will no longer train for war. O descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's guiding light. From Isaiah chapter 66, starting in verse 18. So I am coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendour. I will perform a mighty act among them and then send some of those who remain to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, Lud, known for its arches, Tubal, Javan, and to the distant coastlands that have not heard about me or seen my splendour. They will tell the nations of my splendour. You are my witnesses, says the Lord my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may consider and believe in me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and none will outlive me. I, I am the Lord and there is no deliverer besides me. I decreed and delivered and proclaimed and there was no other God among you. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. This is the word of the Lord in Isaiah 43, verses 10 to 12. The Lord is speaking to his people, a people who, in the context of the latter half of Isaiah, are living in exile in a foreign land with foreign gods, a people who have been cast out from the promised land, whose temple, the place where God dwells, has been destroyed, and who are under the rule of a king who does not honor the Lord. And yet, God's message to them is not kill your enemies or fight for your rights or even just bide your time and try to survive. In this fraught situation, the Lord says to his people, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. God reminds them of their identity as his witnesses, which is to remind them not only of who they are, but also what they do what their identity as God's witnesses necessarily entails, being witnesses. You see, God's people have always had a task appointed to them by God to witness, to point the world to God. This was true of Israel, and it is true for the church today. Our God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, creates a people for himself, not as an end in itself, but as a pivotal, active part of his mission of reconciliation to the world. But I think that we sometimes forget how big God's heart for the world, for the nations, is. Or we, we may even fall into the trap of thinking that God did not have much care for the nations, aside from Israel, until Jesus and the establishment of the church. And when that happens, when we fail to recognize that God has always had a heart for mission and has always invited his people to be a part of it, we then run the risk of having too small a view of mission and the role that we have to play in it. 
So in order to combat against having too small a view of God's heart for mission, I want us to take a look at the Old Testament to see how God's heart for the nations is put on display. Now, there are so many places in the Old Testament that we could go. The the mission of God is everywhere. But I want to focus on the book of Isaiah to see how God speaks to his people, both in times of comfort and in times of distress, about the nations around them. We will see how God has always planned for the nations to be included among his people, how he has therefore always had a heart for mission to the nations, and how he has always intended for his people to be a part of that mission as his witnesses. Now, when thinking about the book of Isaiah and its message, one would be remiss if they did not pay attention to how the entire book is framed. How a book begins and ends can tell us a lot about what is key to understanding the book, what is considered particularly important. A book's beginning sets the stage for what's coming, and its ending draws us to the natural summaries and conclusions that the book has covered and has been leading up to. We should take notice, then, that as was read for us just a few minutes ago, the book of Isaiah begins and ends with visions of the nations. And in these visions, the nations are not being destroyed or coming to attack Israel. Rather, they are visions of what God is working toward. People from every nation and tongue and ethnicity being drawn to the Lord, recognizing him as God and becoming a part of his people. So let's start with the beginning. In Isaiah 2, just after the first chapter where Isaiah has has laid into God's people for not being who God called them to be and where God promises to purge and refine Jerusalem so that it would be the faithful town that it is meant to be, the prophet then presents us with a vision of what this ideal city of Jerusalem looks like. And so we read again in verses 2 to 4, In future days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains and will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob, so he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the center for moral instruction. The Lord's message will issue from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will no longer train for war. What is staggering about this picture is the composition of the people. It is not just Israel, but All nations, all nations are drawn to the ideal Jerusalem, the center of God's inclusive kingdom, and want to receive the Lord's instruction. They stream to it so that they can be taught his ways and walk in his paths. No more disputes, no more war. The world as it should be. All of creation, all peoples from all nations drawn to and worshiping the Lord. And we shouldn't miss the way that this image of the Lord's mountain recalls another mountain in the Old Testament where the Lord met with his people. In the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, God gave Israel his Torah, translated law, or as in Isaiah 2, instruction for them to be his people. And so here in Isaiah 2, we have another mountain where God meets with his people and from which he gives them his Torah, his law, his instruction. 
But the point here is not simply to recall Mount Sinai. Rather, in Isaiah 2, we have a new and better Sinai. Mount Zion is the most important of mountains. The Lord's temple is there, which means the Lord is dwelling there. All the nations, not just Israel, are present there. So why is Mount Zion framed in this way? Well, just as a covenant was established between God and his people on Mount Sinai, a new covenant is being established between God and his people here at Mount Zion. This is why God's Torah is being given at Mount Zion, because Torah, law, is what provides the basis for a covenant. A new covenant that is given to Israelite and Gentile alike. And that is massive. This is what the ideal city of God is meant to be. And by extension, because a city is something that is inhabited, it is what God's people are meant to be. What God in chapter 1 of Isaiah is refining them to be. A signal to the nations so that God's people would be comprised of all the nations. This is the vision that the beginning of Isaiah points us to and expects us to take on board, that God has a plan for all the nations, inviting them to come to him and enter into a covenantal relationship with him. So that's the beginning of the book. That's how Isaiah starts. What about the end? Well, in Isaiah 66, verses 18 to 19, as was also read a few minutes ago, just as the book is closing... We read, I am coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendor. I will perform a mighty act among them and then send some of those who remain to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, Lud, to Baal, Javan, and to the distant coastlands that have not heard about me or seen my splendor. They will tell the nations of my splendor. This is the grand vision the book of Isaiah ends with. God gathering the nations so that they can witness his splendor and so that they can go out and tell even more people from even more nations about him. The end result, the goal, is that God makes for himself a people who worship him, who are comprised of every nation and every tongue and every ethnicity. What I find so exciting here in chapter 66 is that in no uncertain terms, the definition of who God's people are is ever expanding. He gathers the nations and makes them his people. And then as his people, he sends them out to gather in more nations to be his people. That this is how the book of Isaiah begins and ends should not be missed or overlooked. These prophecies to Israel, this piece of inspired scripture, begins and ends with some of the clearest pictures of God's heart and intent for the nations. He is not the God of one nation only. He is not the God of one culture. He is the God of all peoples, and as such, has a desire and plan that all peoples would know him. And he wants us to know that plan and be a part of it. You are God's witnesses. And as we have already caught a glimpse of, and as we will continue to see in Isaiah, to be God's witnesses is to take on God's mission and to be a part of his work of reconciling the world to himself. So we've looked at the beginning and end of Isaiah, but what about the in-between bits? It goes without saying that we cannot look at everything the book of Isaiah says about the nations. There's a lot, and it is complex. 
But now that we have seen how the book begins and ends, let's consider a few other key places where the prophet talks about the nations, and after that we will look a little bit more at what he has to say about God's people in relation to the nations. So we'll begin with Isaiah chapter 19. Now if you're familiar with the structure of the book of Isaiah, you may be surprised Because Isaiah 19 falls near the middle of chapters 13 to 23, a section that can quite accurately be described as a series of condemnations, announcements of the Lord's judgment against all the nations, including his own people. This section is a whirlwind of judgment and promises of wrath against Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. What can we say about God's heart for the nations here? Well, one key theological theme throughout the book of Isaiah is that God's judgment is not primarily retributive in nature. Rather, it is restorative. The primary purpose of God's judgment is not to punish, though he is certainly right to do so and sometimes does, Rather, it is to bring people closer to him. This is most clearly seen in his relationship to Israel, his chosen people throughout the book. His judgment on his own people is always a means of refining them to be the people that they are meant to be and of restoring them to right relationship with him. But we also see a hint that God can judge the nations for a similar purpose. In Isaiah 19, the Lord announces terrible and wide-ranging judgment against Egypt, an ancient enemy of Israel. And while the Lord could leave Egypt devastated after his judgment is complete, we instead read this in verses 18 to 25. At that time, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of armies. One will be called the city of the sun. At that time, there will be an altar for the Lord in the middle of the land of Egypt, as well as a sacred pillar dedicated to the Lord at its border. It will become a visual reminder in the land of Egypt of the Lord of armies. When they cry out to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a deliverer and defender who will rescue them. The Lord will reveal himself to the Egyptians, and they will acknowledge the Lord's authority at that time. They will present sacrifices and offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and fulfill them. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and then healing them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will listen to their prayers and heal them. At that time, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will visit Egypt and the Egyptians will visit Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. At that time, Israel will be the third member of the group along with Egypt and Assyria and will be a recipient of blessing in the earth. And the Lord of armies will pronounce a blessing over the earth saying, Blessed be my people, Egypt, and the work of my hands, Assyria, and my special possession, Israel. There is so much here that we could unpack, but let's stick to the major threads. First, we see that God's judgment against Egypt, this ancient enemy of his people and a nation that does not fear the Lord, leads to a relationship with God. He does not leave them in judgment, but rather uses it to reconcile them with himself. 
Second, in this relationship, they are not only on good terms with God. In what is an astonishing moment in verse 25, God calls them my people, a designation typically used of Israel. The Egyptians are his people. This is what God wants for the nations, to be his people. Third, Egypt is not the only nation affected. Assyria is brought into the fold as well. Assyria, the empire that was the big bad of Isaiah's lifetime, the empire that was conquering its way through the ancient world, the empire that attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and took the people there into exile. Despite this, God has a heart for Assyria as well and envisions a day when Assyria worships along with Egypt and is a recipient of God's blessing alongside Egypt and Israel. This is astounding. This is incredible. So just to recap what we see in Isaiah 19, in the midst of God's announcements of worldwide judgment, his heart for the nations, even those that would be considered the most evil or enemies of his people, is revealed. His desire is not for their final destruction, but rather that the nations would be reconciled to him and would become his people just as Israel is his people. Next, we turn to Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. These chapters are something of a climax to chapters 13 to 23, whereas chapters 13 to 23 focus on God's judgment of the nations. Chapters 24 to 27 point us to the Lord's judgment of the entire cosmos. And the image is staggering. The earth dries up and withers. Houses are shut up. Cities lie in ruins. The earth itself staggers around as if it were drunk, and the moon and the sun are darkened. Just like chapters 13 to 23, there is judgment here that is final, God's just judgment against sin. But we also see God's intention that judgment be transformative, something that can lead to reconciliation and new life. In Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9, just after cosmic judgment is described in chapter 24, we read, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you in praise. I will extol your fame. For you have done extraordinary things and executed plans made long ago exactly as you decreed. Indeed, you have made the city into a heap of rubble, the fortified town into a heap of ruins. The fortress of foreigners is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. So a strong nation will extol you. The towns of powerful nations will fear you. For you are a protector for the poor, a protector for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm, a shade from the heat. Though the breath of tyrants is like a winter rainstorm, like heat in a dry land, you humble the boasting foreigners. Just as the shadow of a cloud causes the heat to subside, so he causes the song of tyrants to cease. And then pay attention where this is going. The Lord of armies will hold a banquet for all the nations on this mountain. At this banquet, there will be plenty of meat and aged wine, tender meat and choicest wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the shroud that is over all the peoples, the woven covering that is over all the nations. He will swallow up death permanently. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Indeed, the Lord has announced it. At that time, they will say, look, here is our God. 
We waited for him and he delivered us. Here is the Lord. We waited for him. Let's rejoice and celebrate his deliverance. Here we see the nations responding to the Lord's judgment positively, responding in fear and worship. And then we read about this incredible banquet, a party that the Lord puts on, not just for Israel, but for all nations. This is what God's end game looks like, a party with the best food and wine for his people, now comprised of peoples from all nations. A party where he brings comfort and peace. A party where he defeats death forever. This is God's intention. This is his heart for the nations on display. Next, in Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 24, we see one of the clearest invitations from God to the nations. The Lord says, Gather together and come. Approach together, you refugees from the nations. Those who carry wood and idols know nothing. Those who pray to a God that cannot deliver. Tell me, present the evidence, let them consult with one another. Who predicted this in the past? Who announced it beforehand? Was it not I, the Lord? I have no peer. There is no God but me, a God who vindicates and delivers. There is none but me. Turn to me so you can be delivered, all you who live in the earth's remote regions. For I am God and I have no peer. I solemnly make this oath. What I say is true and reliable. Surely every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will solemnly affirm. They will say about me, yes, the Lord is a powerful deliverer. All who are angry at him will come to him and be ashamed. Did you catch that? The Lord says to the nations, turn to me so you can be delivered. And then we see the nations respond in genuine worship, confessing the Lord as their deliverer. The Lord has always desired that the nations turn from idols that are powerless and turn to him, the only God, the God who has the power to deliver. He invites them to come to him. He wants to deliver them. Our God wants good things for the nations. Let's look at one more, this time in Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 7. In this context, the prophet is looking forward to the time when God's people return from exile. You see, after exile, after being away for so long from the promised land, the land central to Israel's covenant with God, central to their identity, after being under foreign rule and surrounded by idols for years and years, there is an opportunity for God's people to be told afresh what it means to be God's people and who can be a part of God's people. So we shouldn't miss that one of the first topics mentioned is the inclusion of foreigners. We read in Isaiah 56, 1 through 7, This is what the Lord says, Promote justice, do what is right, for I am ready to deliver you. I am ready to vindicate you openly. The people who do this will be blessed, the people who commit themselves to obedience, who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, who refrain from doing anything that is wrong. No foreigner who becomes a follower of the Lord should say, the Lord will certainly exclude me from his people. The eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For this is what the Lord says, for the eunuch who observes my Sabbaths and choose, and choose what pleases me and are faithful to my covenant, 
I will set up within my temple and my walls a monument that will be better than sons and daughters. I will set up a permanent monument for them that will remain. As for foreigners who become followers of the Lord and serve him, who love the name of the Lord and want to be his servants, all who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, and who are faithful to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. Wow. Anyone, anyone who is faithful to the Lord is welcome among his people and in his temple. They can become the Lord's servants. Servants, a term used in Isaiah to refer to God's people. Note also that these declarations from the Lord are actually reversals of old laws given to the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 23, eunuchs and at least some classes of foreigners are prohibited from entering the temple. Those laws were a necessary step in the life of Israel and in God's redemptive plan, but they were not the end goal. Here we see God demonstrating his heart for the nations by formally allowing and encouraging the inclusion of these groups in the life and worship of Israel. So just to recap, throughout the book of Isaiah, from the beginning to the end, we see God's heart for the nations. We see invitations to the nations to turn to God and be delivered. We see visions of God's ideal people, which is always a multinational, multi-ethnic worshiping community. We see a God who seeks to transform the nations so as to reconcile them to himself. We see God's inclusive kingdom that is ever-growing as the nations come to him and then tell even more nations about him. So we've looked at some of those key passages concerning the nations. But what about God's people as distinct from the nations? What role do they play in all of this? We have already talked about this some, given that it's very hard to talk about the nations without talking about God's people. But I would like to return with this question in mind to a few passages that we've already discussed, as well as a couple additional passages. Returning to Isaiah 43, which I read at the very beginning, God says to his people, you are my witnesses. To be God's people is to be his witness to the rest of the world. And for God to call his people his witnesses assumes a few things. First, it assumes there is something to witness. God's people have beheld and experienced God's saving acts. They have entered into a covenantal relationship with him. He teaches them and instructs them in his ways, which naturally leads to human flourishing. Second, to be God's witness assumes that there are people who have not witnessed this. That's fairly self-explanatory. Third, and here's the kicker, to be God's witness assumes that those who do not know God need to be witnessed to, and that this is the job of those who do know God. To be a witness is to play an active role. It is not just the passive experience or examination of something. It is to actively tell of what you have heard and what you have seen and what you have experienced to those who need to hear and need to see and need to experience. 
This is no less true for the church today as it was for Israel. We are God's witnesses. We have experienced his salvation and know him, but there are so many who do not know the love and grace of Jesus. And so we have a task to actively be God's witnesses. And as we have seen and will see in the next few passages, God's commission of his people to be his witnesses is not an afterthought. God's heart for the nations, that they would know him and become his people, is not an afterthought or or some sort of backburner project. It is the mission, and it has always been the mission. Now, it is sometimes the case that God will act on his own and bring those on the outside in. We've seen that in a few of the passages that we've read, like in Isaiah 45, 22, where God addresses the nations directly and says, turn to me so you can be delivered. But first, remember that the prophecy of Isaiah 45, or any part of Isaiah for that matter, was not actually delivered to the nations, but rather to God's people. Why include God's address to the nations in his words to his people? Because when God announces his plans, he expects his people to get on board. God doesn't tell his people living among the nations about his plans for the nations, about his heart for the nations, just so that they can ignore it and continue on with their lives like it doesn't matter. No, God informs his people so that they can be working alongside him and participating in his mission. Second, we do often see elsewhere the role that God's people play as it concerns the nations, that God uses his people to draw the nations to himself. This goes all the way back to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis. God makes a people for himself so that the nations would be blessed by them. We saw this at the beginning and end of Isaiah. In Isaiah 2, when the nations are streaming to the Lord, it isn't an event that simply happens without any sort of cause. No, it is when God's people live as God's people, as his holy city, that the nations are drawn to him. As the chapters surrounding Isaiah 2 make clear, God's people had not been living as God called them, and he had to refine them so that they could be this ideal city that we see in Isaiah chapter 2. This is why, after the incredible vision in chapter 2, Isaiah directs his attention to his recipients and says in verse 5, O descendants of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's guiding light. You see, the ideal vision in verses 2 to 4 was not the current reality because God's people were not living in such a way as to be faithful witnesses. And so the prophet presents them with the goal and then urges them toward it because they are, or they should be, what draws the nations. The point of the vision in verses 2 to 4 in its context in the book of Isaiah is to push God's people to respond in faithfulness. This is who we are meant to be, the vision says, but that is not who we are. We have to change. You see, God's purpose when refining his people is not only to reverse their sin, but so that they would live in such a way that affects a change in their very composition as a people. God refines his people in order to add to his people. We saw the role of God's people in Isaiah 66 as well, perhaps even more clearly. In Isaiah 66, the definition of God's people is ever-expanding, 
Let me read it again. I am coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendor. I will perform a mighty act among them and then send some of those who remain to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, Lud, Tubal, Javan, and to the distant coastlands that have not heard about me or seen my splendor. They will tell the nations of my splendor. God acts and gathers the nations and makes them his people. But then what happens? He sends the nations that have become his people out to tell of his splendor to the other nations so that they too might become his people. The newly minted witnesses are sent out to witness to others. God makes a people for himself so that he can draw more people to himself. God accomplishes his mission through his people. There's one more text I want to focus our attention on, Isaiah 42 This chapter contains the first of Isaiah's four famous servant songs. If you've been a Christian for a while, you are probably familiar at least with the fourth servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, given its use in the New Testament to illustrate how Jesus' death fulfills Scripture. What you may not know, however, is that the identity of the servant is not quite the same through the servant songs. It kind of is, and it kind of isn't. But that's a whole lecture that we don't have time for. Suffice it to say for now that servant is a typical designator for Israel, for God's people in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah, there is a progression in the servant songs from the identity of the servant being the ideal version of God's people, the ideal Israel, to it being a single individual who takes on the role, the job of ideal Israel. In whatever case, the connection and overlap between the servant and God's people is clear and intentional. The job of the servant is the job of God's people. So let's see what the prophet has to say about servant Israel in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 12. I won't read the whole passage, but I'll pull out a few key verses. So starting with verse 1, Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have placed my spirit on him. He will make just decrees for the nations. And then in verse 4, he will not grow dim or be crushed before establishing justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait in anticipation for his decrees. And in verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, officially commission you. I take hold of your hand. I protect you and make you a covenant mediator for people and a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to release prisoners from dungeons, those who live in darkness from prisons. And lastly, verses 10 to 12, sing to the Lord a brand new song. Praise him from the horizon of the earth. You who go down to the sea and everything that lives in it, you coastlands and those who live there, let the wilderness and its cities shout out, the towns where the nomads of Kedar live. Let the residents of Sela shout joyfully. Let them shout loudly from the mountaintops. Let them give the Lord the honor he deserves. Let them praise his deeds in the coastlands. In these verses, we see that the servant, that God's people, are intended to be the means of Yahweh's justice, to bring justice about for the nations. We often think of the word justice as only about the righting of wrongs, and there certainly is an element to that when justice is talked about in the Old Testament, but it is so much more than only that. The word used for justice in the Old Testament, and in Isaiah especially, refers to the just exercise of power to make decisions for the benefit and good of others. 
This is such a good thing that the coastlands are described as waiting for the servant's decrees. But there's more. God makes his servant a covenant mediator for people, a light to the nations. This is what God's people are called to embody. They are to faithfully serve the Lord by bringing his covenant to the nations, by pointing them to the creator of the universe. God's people are described as a light for the nations. A light dispels darkness and provides illumination to see what has always been there, but what, the, but what those in the dark were unable to comprehend without the light. This is who God's people are meant to be. We see this same image also used in the second servant song, but a little more gets added to it. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God is speaking to servant Israel and says, I will make you a light to the nations so you can bring my deliverance to the remote regions of the earth. So you can bring my deliverance or my salvation to the ends of the earth. Just as we saw in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 66, God makes a people for himself so that he can draw more people to himself. And what is the response? We saw in the first servant song in verses 10 to 12, the response is praise to God from everywhere, from the horizon, from the sea, from the wilderness, from the mountains, all praising the one true God. When God's people embody God's mission, the nations respond in the worship of God. So what does all of this have to do with us and with CMS? Well, God's mission hasn't changed, and the means by which he accomplishes his mission hasn't changed. In Acts 1.8, right before his ascension, Jesus says to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And of course, the mission did not stop after the apostles. They witnessed so that others could enter God's kingdom and further witness other unreached peoples. Remember Isaiah 66, where we saw the nations become a part of God's people and then God sends them out to gather in more nations? What else is the church today but people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have been grafted into the people of God and then sent out to be his witnesses, both home and abroad. You are his witnesses. Whether you are a missionary, a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a volunteer, or a congregant, if you are a part of the people of God, you are a witness for God. You are called to embody his mission to the nations, to be a light for all peoples. How this plays out for each person will be different. Some are called to overseas mission and will need to be trained and will need our support. Some are called to mission in their neighborhood and will need to be trained and will need our support. But all are called to mission, to bring the good news of God to those who do not know so that they would see, be delivered, and worship him. So let me sum up and bring this to a close. In the book of Isaiah, we see God's heart for the nations keep showing up. A heart that wants to see the nations come to know him, to enter into a covenant relationship with him, to become a part of his people. And this is not an afterthought or a side project. It is God's mission. 
Though the prophetic oracles and the book of Isaiah were delivered to and written for God's people in Judah, the hope for the nations was deemed so important, so critical, that it merited being included throughout. And as we saw, this is because God's people are an integral part of that mission. God reaches out to the nations by means of his people. But as we also saw in Isaiah, sometimes God's people don't embody that mission. Sometimes they do not live as his faithful witnesses. And so you must ask yourself, how do you conceive of God's people? What is your conceptualization of that group? Do you long for all the nations, for all peoples to see the splendor of the Lord? Do you have a heart for the nations the way that God has a heart for the nations? Just as he desires to multiply his people by bringing those on the outside in, do you desire that the stranger become your brother and sister? Or are you insular? Do you have an inward but not an outward focus? Do you have prejudices that keep you from having the same heart for the nations that God has? Are you complacent? Happy for others to take up the task so long as you don't have to be bothered. Are you living a life of faithful witness? We are God's witnesses. To be God's witnesses is to take on God's mission and to be a part of his work of reconciling the world to himself. We must choose to follow God faithfully and to be the people that he has created us to be. So let me encourage you to actively take on that task, to get on board with God's mission and live in light of that mission, to live faithfully as God's witnesses, and to see yourself as God sees you, as a missionary to the nations. That is a great encouragement. Thank you so much, Chris. In each of these episodes, we're going to be thinking about what it looks like to partner with mission. We'll have a short partnership segment in each episode. Something every Christian in the church can get involved with is mission partnership. Whether it's praying regularly for the workers and their ministries or caring for them by staying in touch when they're on location or in other ways when they're on home assignment, or whether it's supporting financially by giving regularly to CMS to enable the worker to stay on the field, pray, care, give, and perhaps one day go, these are the partnership essentials. So with that in mind, let's meet a missionary couple who right now need more people to partner with them in mission because they are about to head overseas very, very soon to Santiago in Chile. Let's meet Malcolm and Ainsley Purdy. Malcolm and Ainsley, it is fabulous to have you with us here on the Heart of Mission podcast. I gather the kids are being looked after at the moment. We would just like to sit down and hear a little bit about what's coming up for you guys. Now, you're about to head to the nations yourselves. You're going to the nation of Chile in South America. Tell us a little bit about your plans. Uh, Yeah, so in hopefully a few short weeks, we're heading over to Santiago in Chile to work in a Bible college over there called the Centre for Pastoral Studies or the Centro de Estudios Pastorales. I'm sure in three years when I'm back here, you'll hear me saying that a lot better. Um, 
And so we'll be um, working with the students and the teachers there, many of most of whom are locals to Chile and surrounding South American countries, um, to train up pastors to then go back to their churches and teach the Bible. Um, so we're really excited about it. Um, the SEP not only serves the um, churches in Chile, but also surrounding countries, so Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, um, and so on. And so, yeah, it's quite a strategic ministry. Um, we're really excited to kind of walk, walk with um, students as they get their training to become pastors, um, disciple them, equip them, um, give them the tools they need to better teach the Bible so that when they go back to their churches in their communities, and um, we can see more and more people come to know Jesus through through them. And we're going to hear a little bit more about SEP in some other episodes. Can you tell us what are some of the key things you're hoping for long-term in this ministry? Yeah, for sure. So what we're really hoping for is uh, seeing uh, the next generation of gospel uh, church leaders and pastors being trained and equipped for ministry. Um, like Ainsley said before, so it's not just um, training for individuals, it's training for individuals who will um, grow churches, um, uh, maybe plant churches, certainly um, see more people come to know Jesus. So um, we're, yeah, we're excited for the those long-term effects of healthy, healthy churches, um, people coming to know Jesus, um, more more pastors being trained, more people being equipped for ministry. Yeah. Now, how about the family? You're about to go through a very significant transition for the family, and you've been waiting for this for quite a while now. How are you all feeling about what is about to happen over the next few weeks? Yeah, I mean, it's mixed emotions where we've been working towards this for so many years now. We've been um, talking to the kids about it. We're all really excited about going to Chile and starting our lives there. But obviously saying goodbye to our friends and family um, and the things we love here in Adelaide is going to be really hard. Um, we love our church here. We um, see a lot of our family and friends. Um, I personally have lived here my whole life. So um, it's mixed emotions, but um, we're really, we're, you know, knowing that what we're doing is, um, is unknown, but we feel like God's going before us in this uh, and he's preparing a great life for us in Santiago. And the kids can even see that, you know, some of our, our kids can verbalize that they feel both excited and sad, which is exactly how I feel. So good on them for being able to acknowledge that. Um yeah, aside from all of that, there are some unknown logistical things that we're still trying to work through with visas and flights. Um, but again, we trust, um, we've been working towards this for so many years. God's got it sorted. He wants us there. We feel that very strongly. So we know that um, as we work through the emotions of saying goodbye, the logistical um, hurdles of getting there, that God will have it all in control for us. I had an emotional goodbye with my appendix last week as well <laughs> <laughs> in preparation to go. Cast off the extra baggage we don't need. <laughs> God was very kind with the timing of that. Now, we want to invite people to partner with you. You've already spent the last six months visiting churches and beginning your partnership update emails, keeping people in the loop on what your plans are, developing new relationships, meeting people. From your point of view, what are some of the key ways that you would like to invite people to partner with you? Yeah, well, particularly at the moment, we really love people to be praying for us. Um, yeah, you know, just listing off some of those things that um, that Ainsley said before, like they're all great things to be praying for for us. 
um, as we're moving, um, you know, surrounding housing and visas and flights and stuff. We know that God's got them in hand, but we'd really love to have everybody um, praying for us about that. Um, uh, I mean, more longer term, it's like we don't want it. We're not, we're gone, but we're not forgotten. And we're, even though we're going to be in Chile, we're still a part of um, your lives and your churches and um, we don't want you to forget us when we're gone. So write back to our emails, let us know that you're thinking of us and and praying for us and so that when we come back in three years, we're not strangers to each other. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest thing for us, especially as our kids grow up um, with half of, you know, a home being in Adelaide but also a home being in Santiago, um, I don't want them to feel like neither a home. I'd love them to feel like both a home and for us as well. So having um, people who keep in touch and who um, love and care for us back in Australia is going to be really valuable as we um, go on this journey with God, I think. Yeah, that's right. And and we have, um, yeah, we're so blessed to have many great connections with uh, people and, uh, and particular churches here in Australia as well. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to keep all of those up as, mm-hmm. as much as we can. Yeah. Well, Malcolm and Ainsley, we're so thankful that God has called you to this ministry and that we have this opportunity to send you. Mission is very much that partnership between the ones who are sent and the ones who send and support from the home base. And so our hope is that many, many people, including listeners to our podcast, will partner with you in a range of ways. Thank you so much for being with us on the Heart of Mission podcast. We will be praying for you. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Been great. Been great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Well, as I said, we would love to invite listeners to partner with the Purdies. We don't have that same sense of occasion as the conference. We can't just bump into missionaries over morning tea and get to know them that way. But it is very easy to subscribe to their partnership updates, very easy to arrange regular giving to support them in an ongoing way. Just search for CMS SANT in your browser and click on Partner with Missionaries. We will also have a direct link to Malcolm and Ainsley's partnership page in the show notes for the episode. Many CMS supporters will know that our branch has benefited in the last year or so from donation matching for new and increased regular giving. That will continue month to month right through until the end of June this year. So now really is a great time to start financial partnership. The Purdies are about two-thirds funded, so there's a current tangible need for your support. And the donation matching means that your gifts will go further. We again have two generous donors who are committed to seeing more and more people start giving to mission for the first time or increasing. And that's why they've committed to matching your donation. When we pull both together, it means that your monthly commitments will be tripled. So maybe you're a student and you could afford $10 a month. CMS would receive $30 a month for that. Maybe you can afford $50 a month. CMS receives $150 a month. Money is always in second place with CMS, and yet it is a tangible way that you can directly enable gospel ministry overseas. Mission is an exciting thing to be part of. Will you partner with the Purdies or another missionary by receiving their regular prayer updates and by giving monthly to CMS?
The third and final part of our episode is a brief look at what life looks like for the Christians in different parts of the world. We don't do mission in order to make the rest of the world look like us. We want to serve people in other places, and that means taking an interest in what life looks like for them. What is life like for the church in the parts of the world where our workers serve? We've asked our gospel workers to tell us, what's life like? Let's head to South Africa. We're going to hear from Mike and Karen Rowe, serving at George Whitfield College in Cape Town. Well, it's complicated. There is this uneasy feeling of safety, as though some unspoken truce may erupt into hostility at any time. It's the kind of safety that feels like raised fences, electrified wires, and your choice of 24-hour armed response or tactical armed response. It's neighbourhood watch, with an overemphasis on watch. It's a connected kind of disconnect. I mean, there's fibre to the home, but not always water, or even home. It's a city of squatter camps on the freeway ramps, ramps that are simultaneously a way forward for some and a dead end for others. You know, life is a going to church to sing songs in Isizulu, Isikosa, Shona, Afrikaans and English before everyone heads home by car or by foot to their own version of home in their own areas that are still clearly demarcated by generations of inequality and hostility. Christian fellowship is slow smoking a pulled pork roast for hours on end, only to learn at the last minute that your students don't eat pork. Not because they can't, just more for the same reason why you and I don't eat rock dussies. Thankfully, hamburgers are quick. The whole of life here is complex, divided, isolated, hostile, even fragile. See, Christ has abolished the dividing wall of hostility. So please pray that the church may know how to actually live out this reality so that the manifold wisdom of the gospel might be truly proclaimed and clearly revealed to a world that desperately needs it. What a great reminder to us in these times of change and uncertainty that Christ has been victorious. We should indeed keep praying for God's church around the world that we might live out that fact that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Mike and Karen. And thank you for listening to the first ever episode of the Heart of Mission podcast. We have loads more great content to come. Next episode, we're going to have a look at the topic of vulnerable mission. How do we make sure that our mission is Christ-like and not colonial? How do we measure whether mission has been successful when so often our workers face a hard slog over many years and the fruit can be so hard to see? We'll have CMS's resident expert, Dr. David Williams from our training facility, St. Andrews Hall, join our panel to help us think this through, along with a number of experienced gospel workers. In the meantime, may God fill your heart and mind with a hunger for Jesus to be made known in all the world. Thanks for listening.